Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Marine, member of the Mission Roll Call team, and the founder of Kaya's Canines, Cole Lyle. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his own journey into the military, his powerful mental health story, how a service dog changed his life, fighting for holistic treatments to become available for veteran mental health, the viral video of his own canine, Kaya, unique challenges in tribal and rural areas, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Cole Lyle. Enjoy. Well, Cole, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolutely, James. Thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Well, uh, right now I am in Bedford, New York. Uh, I actually, earlier this morning, I I had a 5.30 flight from Westchester, or not, excuse me, uh, Syracuse, New York. But there's no direct flight from there to... uh, here so i had to take a flight from uh, syracuse to dc and then all the way back up to new york <laughs> so my day started at the three thirty when my alarm went off for that five thirty flight and uh you know i finally landed here and just you know um getting ready for the weekend spending some uh, time with family yeah I've, I've had those uh i didn't buy them but i've had those tickets before like i'm trying to go to to california like yeah we just go from florida to new york and then down to delaware and then up to wisconsin yeah. and it's like can we just go straight yeah. lines to california isn't that cheaper but yeah uh, well i mean i i always uh when booking flights i always when i'm booking i'm like oh i'll just take the really early one because they're normally less expensive you never are delayed or canceled because, you know, it's the earliest flight in the day. So there's not a reverberation of cancellations and things like that. And then when you get to your destination, you've got the whole day usually. So um, I'm like, Oh, this is a great idea. I'll just, I'll book the early one. And then of course the alarm goes off at three 30 or four 30 in the morning. You're like, why do I do this to myself every time? <laughs> but then, you know, it's a vicious cycle. You just keep doing it. Absolutely. So, yeah. When, when we end yeah. up having flights that are just, you can't get around it there early, we'll always book a hotel at the airport. Because I told my wife, I just don't want to roll out of bed and then drive 90 minutes but just to get to the airport. So yeah, I value my sleep too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Luckily, this morning, the hotel was only, it wasn't at the airport, but it's a small, you know, Syracuse isn't huge. Um, and it was maybe 10 minutes away. So it wasn't that bad. Beautiful. Um, yeah. All right. Well, then I know, you know, obviously there's got lots of things we're going to talk about when it comes to the nonprofit, but I want to start at the very beginning of your story. So tell me where mm-hmm. you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, 
How many siblings? Yeah, uh, I was born in Corsicana, Texas. Uh, actually, not even in Corsicana. It was outside of Corsicana, uh, between uh, on a ranch between two small towns, Barry and M House, population like 100, uh, outside of city limits. And uh, mom and my dad, you know, obviously my dad was a rancher, still is. Um, and my mom, you know, did, you know, I honestly don't know what she did when I was that young, but, um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was three. So I spent a lot of time with my mom and, uh, I have two older sisters. So I was, I was, uh, swimming in the estrogen ocean of two older sisters and my mom and, uh, even my dog and my cat were, were female. So I was just, I was outnumbered, but, uh, yeah, they got divorced when I was three, and so I spent most of my young years with my mom and spent some time with my dad on, you know, weekends and summers and things like that. I uh, grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with my mom, so I'd spend school years there and then go do summers with my dad. And uh, Yeah, it was, it was, Texas is, uh, I love Texas, I miss it. Hopefully one day I'll live there again. Uh but yeah, uh, it was, uh, I would say it was kind of a strained childhood just because as the only boy and young boy, I, my, you know, my mom, she loved her to death, but she didn't know how to be a dad as well. And my dad, uh, at the time tried to spend some time with him, but he was a little disconnected. We have a good relationship now, but we had a pretty rocky one growing up, uh, and then graduated high school and joined the Marine Corps. So working on a ranch, I grew up on a farm, but my dad was a, a horse vet, veterinarian. So it wasn't agriculture so much. It was There was ducks and sheep and stuff, but mainly it was horses that were being treated. Um, but it was a lot of manual labor, a lot of long days. Talk to me about ranch life compared to you know some of the, the experiences that you had with your mother. I, I mean, vastly different. Right? I mean, my mom lived in uh, smack dab in the middle, right next to DFW Airport in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And it was a very, um, you know, urban kind of, I mean, I wasn't in the heart of Dallas or anything, so I wasn't living in the city in the city, but it was a very uh, suburban uh, area, suburban life. Um, my dad, on the other hand, it was, you're, you're, you feel at the time like you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and as you, as you mentioned, a lot of manual labor, a lot of early mornings, um, a lot of late nights in hindsight, got a lot of good experiences out of it. I, I feel like compared to my peers, I, I have more mechanical skills and, uh, practical skills. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was, you want to build a, a young boy's character, have him, uh, you know, toss around 50 pound bales of hay in 110 degree heat, uh, that, <laughs> that might do it to you. So yeah, just extremely different. Um, luckily my mom was pretty self-aware. So when I was a teenager, put me in a lot of organizations with positive male influences. Uh, I was a, uh, a boy scout and ultimately got my Eagle scout, spent a lot of time with, uh, uh, with my troop and I had a lot of good young male mentors and, and, was in football and had a lot of strong uh, Christian male influences uh, in coaches and 
So vastly different, but I, I, I think I benefited from being in both worlds. I mean, certainly it wasn't great growing up in a broken home and um, as a young boy, being the, the only male in the, in the nuclear family environment. Uh, and there are, there were challenges there. And I feel like obviously some of that still reverberates into, into who I am today, but um, yeah, just completely different. So one of the things that seems to come up over and over again, it might be earlier in someone's life if they didn't struggle, maybe when they were in the uniform or a lot of times it's, you know, it's later, but you have, um, an absence of role models doesn't mean that the mother and father aren't there, but there's still a void, whether it's, you know, true masculinity, meaning kind and compassionate and strong, or whether it's something else. When it comes to scouting, obviously, it got a black eye when it came to some of the sexual abuse, which I know me as a parent, you know, can make me a little bit cautious. Um, but that being said, I've got friends that are Eagle Scouts that are, you know, phenomenal people that swear by by scouting. So talk to me about that, your your role when you were first in it and then the leadership role. I would be firmly in the latter category. I have nothing but good things to say about the uh, experience itself. All my uh, scoutmasters were, I, I mean, I never experienced anything close to the allegations that, that came out. Um, and I, and I frankly was, was pretty shocked because our troop, um, you know, again, in hindsight, you know, you were as a, as a young boy, never alone with another adult. Um, it was always, you were in group activities. Um, so there was never even the opportunity for any of that. But uh, as again, as somebody that grew up with two older sisters and my mom, I always relished and looked forward to the time that I got to go on campouts for the weekend or uh, summer camps for a week and a half and just be a, around a bunch of young men and and men. Uh, it was it was great for me and. Growing up on the ranch, like I, I had some of the the basic skills, like some of the merit badges were were fairly easy to me, like horsemanship, and um, but it it broadened my horizons uh, and did some. I got to explore some topics that I probably otherwise would not have been exposed to in school that I still have interests in and hobbies in today. So. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it helped me a lot. Number one, in informing my decision that I wanted to serve in the military because it was a very service-oriented organization. Obviously, my Eagle Scout project. But then I went to uh, Philmont twice, which was a high adventure Boy Scout camp where uh, the minimum age, I think, is 13 or 14. At the time, I had to get a waiver because I, I begged my Scoutmaster to be able to go uh, younger than I was supposed to be allowed to. Uh, but it was, uh, they, they take you out into, uh, New Mexico and this massive ranch that Wade Phillips donated to the Boy Scouts of America. And you go up for about 10 days to 14 days and just backpack in the back country. Uh, and you have, you know, dehydrated food and some of the camps that you go to have themed things, but, the first year I went, I was the youngest person there. The second time I was a the crew leader because I had experience at Philmont. Um, and I went with some of my, my peers. The first time I was going all with like older scouts that were above me and rank and everything. Second time it was my peers and below. And I'd already had Philmont experience and none of them had 
it really gave me an opportunity to uh, learn more and develop leadership skills. Uh, but even at Philmont, you know, one of the requirements when you go is doing a conservation project for the 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 backcountry itself. So, for instance, one year there was a fire that burned a lot of uh, the north part of Philmont. So they had us take 50-pound bales of hay and go spread hay um, to promote new growth. And um, so things like that, I, I just, I always had a heart for doing those kinds of service projects. I always volunteered to help other people with their Eagle Scout projects. Uh, and I think between the leadership aspect and the service aspect, I, that, those were pretty strong drivers to make me want to serve in the military. My, uh, my son ended up finding the JROTC program in his high school. He's still doing it at the moment. And it was the same kind of thing, the, the, the respect, the service, the, you know, the uniformity, um, the, the, the rank structure. But then last year they went to, I think it was called JCLC. It's like the leadership camp. But it was, again, it wasn't quite a full week. I think it was like five and a half days, but it was all the high ropes and, you know, abseiling and all these things, the confidence building, team building, and it was phenomenal. And he came back exhausted, but so pumped up. So I, I kind of got a slightly different view of the scouting world just from a different lens in the end. Yeah. Well, and, and um, to your point about rank structure and, and uh, one of the things I hated about school growing up is I never felt challenged Right. And that sounds, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like I was like a genius trapped in public school or anything like that, but it was just all regurgitation, you know, and it wasn't, I didn't feel challenged. And, um, the, the public school system is objectively, uh, slanted for, for young girls anyways, because most of the, the teachers are, are, uh, females. Um, when you get up to, you know, six to, sixth grade, right. In, at least in Texas, there was, it's not like there's recess anymore. I know of all boys schools where the first thing you do, um, even in, in younger grades is, is go to PE or go outside and they, they run the boys, you know, because boys just have a lot of that energy. Um, and if you don't get it out of them, then they, they act up in class, they talk, they, they just, they're, I hate the saying boys will be boys, but like there are natural things that they do. Um, and, and so I felt like scouting gave me the opportunity through merit badges, through the rank structure, because you had requirements that you had to complete before you were even eligible for the next rank. It gave me like a structured and like things to actually challenge myself to do and get out of my comfort zone. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that that aspect of it too. There's a, a documentary I talk about a lot. It's called The Motivation Factor, and it was a PE program in the 60s. And they had like a martial arts belt system but it was shorts so the kids actually would work as a team and you know they would every i forget how many it was every couple of weeks or so they would get to challenge the test and if they passed all the things well you went from you know white shorts to blue shorts to red shorts to gold shorts whatever the progression was the last one was phenomenal i mean these were uber athletes by the time but it encouraged that teamwork it, it almost eliminated bullying it gave self-esteem but again, it gave them a thing. You know, you go to PE and you run up and down and put a parachute in the air or kick a ball around. You know, games are fun and they need to be there. But that sense of achievement, that sense of progression, the exploration of the miracle that is a human body, this was such a beautiful program. And it was, you know, it was taken down and, and there was one school that tried to do it and COVID, you know, murdered that in the end. Um, but yeah, I think this is the thing that kids want that progression they want that purpose and they want that that journey 
and sitting down memorizing the states of America doesn't take you on a journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of, I think one, one of my biggest um, issues with school was also, I love, uh, I, I did a, a little exchange program at, at Oxford at one point and um, they, uh, the way they teach, right. Is you have one meeting a week with a tutor in your class and at the end of the year you have one exam and it's pass fail and if you don't study and you don't do the work and it's not on you you're going to fail the exam um teaches responsibility obviously you're talking about two different levels of of i mean oxford um older and and whatever but i i just studying throughout the year and learning a regurgitation of facts or um, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you get all A's, but you fail one class, what's the thing that they're most likely to focus on? The failure. The failure, right? Um, instead of fostering what kids are naturally good at because of standardized testing and because uh, they have requirements and quotas for, for graduation and things like that for federal funding, for state funding, um, we tend to focus not on fostering the kid's natural ability, but on trying to make sure that they're, uh, they're hitting minimum standards or, you know, state tests and things like that. So um, I just, I never really felt challenged. Uh, and I was self-aware enough to know that if I went to college straight out of high school, that I probably, I was still kind of a, I, I needed a kick in the pants um, after high school and I wouldn't take it seriously, and I worried that I wouldn't be challenged there either. Um, so the military was a great option for me. My mom, obviously, she said when I turned 18, uh, you're either getting a job, going to school, or joining the military, but you're not staying in my house. So you know, I didn't want to do what my sisters did, which is go to college, take out student loans, and still work two jobs during college to, to try to not take out more student loans. Um, so the military was a great option because of the GI Bill. It would give me experience. I joined and uh, was a diesel mechanic, and I, and I purposely picked that so that if I got out of the military, I liked it, and I still didn't want to go to school, I had a skill, I had a trade that I could go and work on Mack trucks or work on uh, Caterpillar um, power packs, things like that. Uh, so it was just a great option for me kind of all around, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I just wanted to serve and, and, uh, the Marine Corps, I didn't have any, I was the first person in my family since my grandparents, uh, who served in world war two to serve in the military. So I didn't have any like family guidance on which branch to serve. And my now brother-in-law, but then my sister's boyfriend, uh, was a Marine. He was in Fallujah in 04. Uh, and I really respected him and admired him and he gave me some guidance. He actually tried to talk me out of it. He said, you, you know, you should, uh, you're smart enough. You should go to school and be an officer if it's really something you wanted to do. But I, again, I just didn't, I didn't want to go that route. So, uh, that's why I ended up ultimately joining the Marine Corps over the army or the Navy. So you were deployed to Afghanistan. Have I got that right? Yeah, 2011. So um, I was with uh, the Second Marine Logistics Group. Um, got actually activated from a uh, reserve unit, and 
in 2010, uh, deployed with second MLG in 2011 from, I think, February to November. Uh, the exact dates, I think it might have been late October, early November-ish time frame, but I was in uh, Helmand Province, and it was part of then-President Obama's uh, plan to surge troops in the South uh, and take control of, of, of Helmand Province, with, which ultimately kind of proved to be a fool's errand. But, uh, yeah, so I was there. Uh, got OJT'd when I was in Afghanistan as a, a wrecker operator, which is just a fancy term for a military tow truck. Uh, so obviously things got blown up all the time. So they would need people to go out and uh, tow up the the vehicles to bring them back to base. Or you'd already have uh, a wrecker in the convoy because, again, something probably was going to get blown up <laughs> so that you could just do it right there. But then when our uh, replacements uh, came over and started taking over operational capabilities, uh, I volunteered a lot of my time at the Bastion Trauma Center uh, that was connected to Camp Leatherneck, which was the main place uh, that I spent time, uh, and the and the USO actually on that base. So, wasn't getting a lot of sleep still, but um, yeah, I just felt like I needed to contribute more, um, and that seemed like a great way to do it. I also at the time was uh, thinking because my mom had a career in healthcare, and I was thinking about getting out and trying to pursue uh, becoming like an EMT or a paramedic or something. And I figured that would be a pretty good way to get a little bit of experience and figure out whether it was something I really wanted to pursue or not. With the tow truck driver, the wrecker, um, I think one of the least acknowledges, acknowledged professions that see a horrendous amount of trauma are the the wreckers on on the freeways especially as a first responder we'll go there you know sometimes we'll be able to cut the person out sometimes we won't sometimes the the, you know, the law enforcement side wants it left as it is if it's a, you know some sort of homicide or, or um law was broken that's related to it and you'll see sometimes a wrecker a flatbed will have a car and there'll be a blue tarp over it it's probably a body inside did you ever have any situations where you were kind of exposed to that element yeah, I mean, to be clear, I didn't, I, I got OJT'd because, uh, um, you know, they, they needed help. Um, but I didn't, I didn't do that like a massive amount of times. It was, it was maybe, maybe, maybe five, between five and 10 times. It was not a lot. Um, and I never had a situation where uh, we would go and recover a vehicle and there was like a limb in it. I will say, that as a mechanic that was on the base, when the wreckers would bring them back, sometimes um, you would be working on a, an MRAP that just got absolutely blown to shit um, and just absolutely mangled. And you would find, you know, a finger um, or a hand or, or something like that uh, when you started ripping off all the mangled pieces. And then you'd go inside and you'd find, uh, you know, like I said, a toe or, or, or something like that because the blast had just taken somebody's leg off. And uh, before they, they brought it to us, they would always try to recover body parts and, and things like that um, if if the service member was KIA just so that they could, you know, for um, uh, dignified transfer of remains and things like that. But never never anything like what you're describing. 
Well, I want to ask you a question that I ask everyone who was deployed to a combat zone. And the reason behind this is very simple. The, the average civilian, especially here in America, gets a very polarized view of war or got. Well, we're going to oh, say yeah. get still. I mean, you know, the, the soap opera that is the Ukraine war, for example, you know, there's a the whole script to what's being told. Um, and I mean that in a positive way. There's two groups of young men that are murdering each other because of two tyrants. Um, but you either get a very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, very anti-war, they're all baby killers. And then in the middle are the men and women, arguably children that we send overseas to fight with our, our flag on yeah. their shoulder. So it's a two-part question. The first part, regardless of the politics that sent you, in this case, to Afghanistan, were there moments or things that you witnessed that realize, okay, there are some atrocities being you know, performed, there are some bad people that we need to take care of? You mean just like on on either side? Yeah, I mean it could be exactly either side. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the, the basically the other side will be the good the good side, the kindness. But I mean the horrors of war, basically. Yeah, I uh, when I was at Bastion, there was it really and still to this day bothers me. Um, I saw a lot of like kids and women that that were brought into the trauma center, like local nationals that were just collateral damage. Um, and, uh, there was one kid in particular and it, you know, it, uh, he, um, had a gunshot wound that he was unlikely to survive. Like he had just bled too much before he even got to the hospital. Um, so there was nothing that they could do and he was, you know, shaking and scared and losing a lot of blood and didn't actually have, uh, anybody there. And I was just a volunteer. I wasn't a surgeon or anything, but I was trying to keep him calm and I was holding his hand and, um, he had a, I, I still have it. I don't have it with me. Otherwise I'd show you, but like this, uh, I don't, to this day, I don't know if it's fake or not, but this little Zippo lighter that had, uh, like the Marine Corps, uh, emblem on it. So I'm pretty sure like some Marine in an effort to win hearts and minds or something just gave it to him, but he was like holding on to that. And, um, yeah, I was holding his hand and I, felt the life go out of him and uh it really got to me it took me years of doing therapy to realize why this affected me so much but um you know i realized that it was because me me as a young boy sometimes because uh, unless i was in a scout trip or something like that you know i, I oftentimes felt uh alone and 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 it broke my heart that this kid was sitting there really alone with no family like I was there um in his in his most vulnerable difficult moment um so you know I never saw I I, I feel like the question you asked was alluding to did you ever see um like kind of war crime kind of a stuff I mean I forget who said it but somebody said all war is crime and um and and that was something that that really uh, got to me often was seeing, you know, uh, young kids who, who had no dog in, in our fight, uh, be injured or, or killed. Well, I mean, I'm sorry to dig up that memory, but I think it's, it's important for people to hear this perspective because we've all seen the recruiting videos and they make war seem like super fun jet skis and big guns and high fives yeah you know i i think it's it's not necessarily just the just the recruiters and 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 frankly the the recruiting ads that i see um i've i've never 
seen one that just blew me away is like glorifying war. Um, but, but I will say, I think more than, than the services and the recruiters, the reason why people have such a polarized view of, of the military being like what you said, um, you know, they're all either veterans are all broken and dysfunctional or, you know, they're, they're special operations, door kickers doing, you know, repelling out of helico- helicopters and, um, is because of the media that gets put out from like Hollywood, um, Netflix, uh, just, all, just all these movies that, um, that portray a, it's funny because I, I, there's, you know, hurry up and wait is a common refrain in the military. And it's like half my time in Afghanistan was probably spent doing boring, mundane stuff that never goes into movies and never, you know, never, uh, never gets glorified in, in that sort of way. And, and frankly, a, a massive portion of the military never even deploys to a combat zone and usually stays like stateside. And uh, so I feel like it's, it's pop culture and, and that is a disconnect because military service is becoming a family business. You have uh, 80% of people that served have an immediate family member that served um, and less than 1% uh, serve on active duty in the United States military. Um, so mission roll call actually did a poll last year of Americans represented, uh, representative of the American population and found that 67% of Gen Z, the youngest generation, uh, the, the, who recruiters are trying to recruit now have nobody in their family, uh, or friend group that was a veteran, uh, or somebody on currently active duty. So there's a huge disconnect because they they don't have these conversations with veterans about what it was really like, and all they see is the Hollywood you know portrayals of uh, of that. So they they're like, oh, you're just going to war for oil, and you're just killing babies, or you know they have this dramatized uh, thing like Lone Survivor or Top Gun or uh, that I wouldn't say in any way glorifies war, but it's more high speed. Right. And the, and it shows the special operations thing, um, which is maybe less than 5% of what the military actually does. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm well, sorry. That was long winded. No, but. <laughs> but it was beautiful. This is why I asked these questions, you know, and I think this just to kind of layer on, it's not an anti recruitment video conversation. It's an, a cautionary tale for parents, especially if you're going to allow your child to go fight, you sure as shit better make sure you know it's the reason and it's a justified reason. So I've always said World War II, hands were tied. You know, it, I, I have so much respect for people. There's other wars that we sent our men and women to and we told them one thing and they got there and that thing wasn't actually there or we or we gave the, uh, the intention that we're going to be there for a short amount of time. We end up there for 20 years. That weighed on me a lot too, though, because Afghanistan, I never went to Iraq and um, I had friends that I served with that did, right? But I went to Afghanistan and we had a very uh, justified moral reason for going. Um, so regardless of of ma- mission creep and things like that, even by 2011, you could argue, because uh, Osama bin Laden got assassinated, uh, we, we killed uh, Osama bin Laden uh, May 6th of 2011, which is, I was in Afghanistan. I was in, in Helmand. And uh, you could argue at that point, like, okay, 
we got everybody that was responsible for 9-11 and uh, mission creep started to go in after after that. Um, but it was still a, a morally justified war. And that's what made the end of it so hard and the Afghanistan withdrawal so hard is because, you know, that we saw a lot of those sacrifices from the Afghan people themselves and then and then, you know, our military and our allies and partners and for it to end the way it did and just uh, all those gains be reversed in a matter of days. It was it was just heartbreaking. So in the same poll that I told you that we did, that said 67 percent of Gen Z doesn't know active duty or veteran that same poll, uh, we asked, uh, would you ever recommend military service to a, a dependent, to a loved one. And of the people that said no, we, we did a follow-up question and we said, which of these reasons are you know listed as why you would not recommend service? And obviously the, the highest one was fear of death or injury. You don't want your loved one to, to die or get injured. But one of the next highest ones, and I don't quote me on the number, but I want to say it was like around 45 to 50% said that they wouldn't recommend service because policymakers uh, supporting wars that they would not support. And I think that's a huge key to this is with the disconnect and the information uh, not being shared amongst uh, the the civilian population and them getting only what they see through Hollywood, um, that's a huge problem. And that's, I think, part of the reason why the United States military is seeing the recruiting crisis that it's seeing right now. Well, I think it's about trust, isn't it? And someone was saying about from the ally, one of the, the guests that have been in Afghanistan, it's like, what happened to the withdrawal? How do we gain trust from allies in the next you know, war? God forbid there's another one. When they saw what we just did to the last ones, you know, I mean, it's all down to trust. And again, justification and, you know, and honesty. Um, and this is why, you know, like you said, this, this one moment, this, this, you know, few hours that you spent with this little boy, that you carry, you know, decades later, that's one micro trauma of all these people that, that you know, enlist. Um, and so by simply, like you said, buying into the Hollywood facade, um, you know, we've got to tell the other story as well. Like, hey, just so you know, your 18-year-old may also be decapitated on national television. Let's make sure we're having this conversation too. Do you still want to go ahead with this war? Do you still want to start pissing off the Ukraine or Russia or whatever? Or, you know, do we do we need to 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 try and be a little bit more um what's the right word? Yeah, we um diplomatic. Diplomatic. Yeah, and diplomatic as well. Like not immediately knee jerk because one thing is as a complete non military member, white belt outside looking in, it's how yeah, can we- I, I I hear what you're saying, but also when I when I worked in the Senate, um and and especially after the Afghanistan withdrawal, I, I it's easy to say we should be more diplomatic and we should do that. But honestly, the diplomatic corps has its own set of problems. Um, and, and one of them being is that like the intelligence community and like, uh, uh, uh well, in the diplomatic corps and, uh, intelligence community, you know, they tend to recruit from, uh, you know, top tier schools, Harvard, MIT, uh, you know, people that, that have master's degrees in international relations, but they don't have a lot of, like for lack of a better term grit and like the social life skills like the the state department people that were in afghanistan during the withdrawal literally were working nine to five hours like nine to five and then after they were done uh they just wouldn't process 
uh, any any SIVs or people at the gates until the next day, right? And and we see that um, in Africa, uh, where China and and uh, Russia are trying to, you know, insert themselves uh, at our expense. You know, we have diplomats that that won't leave you know, the, the quote unquote green zone, like where it's safe, they won't go out, you know, in Iraq, this was a big thing uh, from uh, 2015 to 2018, 19, uh, with the persecution of the Yazidis. And uh, we had diplomats that wouldn't leave the green zone. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to say, that let's just be more diplomatic before we have to make that choice. And, and I'm not saying that we should knee jerk to military action by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's a multifaceted problem, um, and, and I think it starts with trust, like you pointed it out, um, that we have to, we're losing trust in institutions, we're losing trust in, um, in Americans that are inside these institutions um, that preclude us from having difficult conversations about re- necessary reforms. And I think that's that's tragic. Well, one one observation again, like I said, as a as a white belt, is simply if you look at the obesity epidemic at the moment, there is a lot of pushback from companies that are making a lot of money selling really bad food and pharmaceuticals against you know fitter, healthier people because that's their customer. From again, a, a you know a, a white belt perspective, when it comes to war. There is clearly some sort of pressure from groups of people that make a lot of money when our men and women are fighting that worries me. How do we stop them from, again, being the critical mass that forces us into a war that maybe diplomacy without that pressure would have held off on? I mean, when we need all those weapons and MREs and uniforms, I'm not saying that, you know, we don't need any of that stuff. We do. But we've seen in you know outside of the military when it comes to health in this country how lobbying and you know predatorial actions by some of these companies have caused illness and death in you know literally millions of americans yeah i mean unrestricted cat it's uh capitalism is a a a system it's not an ideology right and there's a lot of people uh, particularly in the republican party uh that you know, are, are the, in the cult of capitalism. It's, it's unrestricted free markets and um, companies should have the ability to do whatever they need to do in order to turn a profit and competitive advantage and in international trade and, and all this stuff. And to some extent, like what you're talking about, there need to be um, reasonable restrictions on some of that stuff when it ultimately harms the population uh, I mean, capitalism has has raised more people out of poverty than any system in the history of the world. There's no arguing that, and certainly our standard of living and our uh, uh, I forget what the term is like consume something. Well, never mind. But um, our standard of living is is much better now even than it was you know 15, 20 years ago, uh, and certainly even even poor people now live better than kings 200 years ago because they've got running water they've got you know better sanitation and and things like that uh but where public health uh, there's a great example during the baby food shortage uh during covid or a little bit after covid i can't remember exactly when it was um 
Enfamil, not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but Enfamil and um, the other uh, baby formula company, they had uh, gotten the FDA to restrict uh, formula from European countries uh, that so they could protect their market share in the United States. And these formulas in, in Europe were arguably healthier, more organic for, for babies than the Enfamil and the, and the, other, the other stuff. Uh, it became necessary to, for the FDA to lift that restriction. And I don't see we're gonna, that we're going to lift that or reinstate that restriction. But to your point, um, the fact that it even was there in the first place, uh, that was crony capitalism. And that's not good. And, and yeah, I, every time I go to Europe or the UK, I feel like I eat the same type of food that I eat in America. And I eat more of it, but I still lose weight because there's not the, the stuff that is just packed, the, the processed junk that's packed into American food. It's got that bad sugar. You're the second person that said that on an interview in 24 hours. The other guest of mine was all over the place, even Africa. And he's like, I eat, I don't bloat, you know. And I agree, I, I go back home a lot. And it's, it's just simply, you know, what are we allowing to be put in our food? It's not that the British or the French of this, you know, amazing kind of cooking that we don't have here it's just they don't use shitty ingredients here's a great military example too when we were in afghanistan and i was on camp leatherneck a couple of times i was on convoys down at lashkar which was the british air base and in helmand and on the american base you know you go to the chow hall and you have breakfast that's open for three hours you have lunch that's open for you know two hours three hours dinner that's open three hours and you even have midnight rations. So you can go to the chow hall at midnight um, to go eat. And it's all that Ben E. Keith stuff, you know, on the big bases, not on the small fobs like Nole or Eddie or, or, or fobs like that. You're eating MREs and, and whatever you can eat. But uh, on, on the big bases, you had those Ben E. Keith heated meals. And logistically, I get why it was easier because it was a big base, but we go to Lashkar Gah and, the, the Brits ran it so much differently. It was like breakfast is from 6 to 7.30. And if you don't get breakfast, you're screwed. Lunch is from 11.30 to 1. And if you don't get lunch, you're screwed. And, you know, dinner, and it was all freshly cooked stuff. It was like fresh chicken and fresh veggies. And, um, and they even had like a garden where they, they grew their veggies and, and things like that. It was just a much different way of doing things and and i um you know capitalism worked well for america in that instance because it was a way to get uh decent ish food in bulk over to american troops but the british way was definitely healthier interesting perspective well i want to get to the other side of that question and then move forward with your own journey the other side that we also don't hear on the television, on the news, you know, either side is the kindness and compassion, whether it was shown by the allies, whether it was, you know, the men and women that you serve with. So what about that? I mean, we have this blanket statement, oh, we're at war with Afghanistan, we're at war with Iraq. Well, obviously, there's a lot of oppressed people in these countries being terrorized themselves. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think uh, I... I you know, personally saw examples. I mean, we also had a lot of local nationals, uh, Afghans that were on the base working on the base. And so you got to have some interactions, uh, with them. Uh, but then when you were out, like we went through, uh, this town, 
uh, Goresh that was near uh, Lashkaga and talked with some of the locals there. Um, and I feel like the Afghan people, they just wanted to live their lives. They just, they, they wanted to not be shot at and blown up and, um, and they were all very nice. I mean, granted we had guns, but like they were all very, very nice. Um, and, and then you just have to look at the, uh, Afghan national army and the Afghan air force. They lost 60,000 people over the course of, uh, it's 20 years, maybe even less time than that, like 60,000 people, just the army. That's not even counting the civilian casualties. Although I, I should note that the Afghan uh, population from the time that uh, America uh, invaded Afghanistan up until the point uh, that we left doubled. Um, so that's an important thing to point out too, because I think there was, there was more stability. There was more freedom for particularly um uh, women and young girls. So I, I think, sure, there are personal examples uh, of just being nice and being kind to the local population. But I think the American military and uh, individuals created a more stable, even with the warfare going on in pockets, a more stable country uh, that was that promoted individual freedom and the ability to, to better yourself. Um, so there, yeah, I think there were, was tons of that. Beautiful. That's a, that's a kind of resounding theme. And a lot of people that have been Afghanistan specifically is there's a lot of anger about the way, you know, the withdrawal and maybe the time that they were there. But I think every single member of the military can look in the mirror and go, we made a difference. It may have been at that well, point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Afghanistan showed us that the United States, um, military can't really be beaten tactically, particularly because we had air superiority. Um, we were rarely beat operationally. Afghanistan was a strategic failure. Um, and, and by strategic, I mean by civilian and senior military policymakers that continuously came out and said, we're making quote unquote progress in Afghanistan, but couldn't define what that progress was. Um, and, and it became a self-licking ice cream cone. And ultimately, it led to the withdrawal in Afghanistan. Um, you know, you can debate whether or not we, we should have kept troops there. I think a small force would have been uh, what I would have preferred. I mean, we still have troops in Japan, Germany, South Korea, um, all places that are now thriving capitalist democracies uh, and doing very, very well as societies. Um, I don't think it was unreasonable to think I, I hated people that would say forever wars because we weren't trying to be there and conduct warfare forever. But, you know, we did make strides for that population that could have been protected had a small force been there. And it wouldn't have even come at a uh, huge cost in, in lives and, and treasure, likely. I mean, you can't prove a counterfactual, but... Yeah, that's another reason why it was so heartbreaking. So a lot of... Uh, let me find the word I'm looking for. Um, again, another common denominator where people seem to struggle and we'll start getting into the mental health side now is the transition. Now, in the first responder communities, it might be retirement, it might be an injury, but obviously in the, in the military profession, usually it's a transition you know, out of the military. Um, 
what made you decide to transition out and what was that initial transition like for you after six years in this kind of tribe and purpose that you had? Yeah, I think it was maybe slightly easier for me because um, after I got back from Afghanistan, I um, was in a reserve unit. And so I spent a lot of my time as a civilian um, and then spent you know time with uh, my reserve unit for uh, annual training and, and weekends and sometimes for temporary additional active duty. Um, never really more than like a month at a time. But um, I think it's difficult for people because, you know, you join the military, 80% of the military is enlisted. And a lot of those people come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They, they join for the, for the benefits like the GI bill and for the VA home loan and for, you know, to learn a skill, to learn a trade, to get out of a bad environment, a bad home environment and go join a tribe and go um, get a steady paycheck and things like that. And so when you transition, you're just all of a sudden, and you spend 13 weeks, you know, 16 weeks, whatever uh, boot camp is now, learning to adapt and become a part of this culture um, and this team mentality, learn how to do your job. And then, you know, you take a two week, you know, PowerPoint click through tap class on this is what you need to do to be successful as a civilian. You get uh, kicked out. Thank you for your service. And you lose not only that support system, that peer support system and the chain of command that you had, but you lose your sense of identity. You're like, you know, I was, I was a part of this group that meant so much to me. And I spent years sacrificing for, uh, the men and women to my left and right. And now you're like, who do I serve now? You know, what's my purpose? What do I, what do I do? Um, and thankfully we've seen the, the veteran unemployment rate 10 plus years ago was skyrocketing. Um, now it's, it's less than the national civilian average. So it's, it's a good thing. We're seeing more veterans transition out because there's been more focus on that and, and get, I think over 95% of veterans have, have a job, um, within the first year of getting out. So it may take a little time for them to figure out what they want to do. Um, but luckily that's, you know, that's a thing, but I think the larger issue that is driven to this suicide crisis amongst the veteran community and uh, and mental health problems amongst the veteran community would be the the lack of purpose and the lack of finding something else to serve and to replace that gap. And you you know you can say if you have a family, make your family who you serve. You know, make your job who you serve. But it's it's different because you know you had that group of people that uh, whether you said it or not, you know you you agreed to to die or sacrifice for uh and and that's those are connections that sometimes can be closer than even a spouse and you just you lose that it gets ripped away from you pretty quickly so i know you found yourself in a, in a dark place kind of walk me through the roller coaster of, of your own mental health that led to that point yeah so we already talked about some of the some of the issues i had from uh volunteering at the Bastion Trauma Hospital. And, um, you know, I got out and the reason I, I decided to get out was because, um, to be honest with you, I, I my brother-in-law was, was kind of right before I joined. And I did kind of chafe in the Marine Corps structure because I'm the type of person that uh, 
you know, I, I will ask, why are we doing it this way? You know, why this, there's a smarter way to do this, you know? And I, I was the squeaky wheel and I was, was the one that was like, people, people said, Hey, can you just shut up and do your job? And I, and I hated that answer. I was like, there's a better way to do this. Like, let's do it. Um, and ultimately before I got out, a lot of people that used to give me crap for that, you know, were like, I actually really appreciated winning cause it made me think, but, um, but I chafed underneath, frankly, particularly in Afghanistan, there were one or two people that were in charge of me that, uh, and I won't name them cause you know, we've reconciled, but like one or two people that were in charge of me that I had real problems with and I did not. I was like, I don't want to put my life in the hands of somebody that I don't think is frankly super intelligent and, um, or, or, you know, egotistical and doing it for themselves or so after the, the surge kind of drew down president Obama, uh, they came out with a voluntary early release program. And they said, if you're, if you're good on all your training and everything like that, and um, you're satisfactory. If you want to get out early, you can. And, and so I raised my hand and I said, I'll do that. I don't feel like I have anything left to give the Marine Corps. And I don't think the Marine Corps has anything left to give to me. So let's go try something else. Um, you know, they, after we got back from Afghanistan, they said, you need to go take a uh, post-deployment health assessment, which everybody did and indicated that I needed to seek treatment for uh, post-traumatic stress. So I was still in the military while I was doing that. And then when I transitioned, I still hadn't really gotten over or, or not gotten over, learned to mitigate the symptoms uh, that I was experiencing. Layer on top of that, that I, at the time I was going through a nasty divorce and uh, didn't have a job and wasn't in school yet. Not only was I, did I feel like I was lacking purpose, but I had, it seemed like everything the walls were crashing down around me. Um, and when, you know, my, my ex-wife decided that, uh, she wanted a divorce, the way I found out about it was, uh, I logged into my bank account one day and like three quarters of it was gone. And I was like, what the, like, what, what? And I called her and she was like, I want a divorce. And I, I took, you know, my half of the money because I was afraid you wouldn't give it to me. And I'm like, well, you took more than half. First of all. <laughs> I'm no mathematician, um, but. <laughs> and, and so I was, uh, so, you know, so there was a huge chunk of like my savings for, that I had saved from my deployment um, that, that I didn't have. So I was stressed out financially. I was stressed out relationship, but, you know, all the stuff and um, probably drinking more than I should have been at that point. And so, you know, one night I uh, just decided to, I was like, what, what am I doing? Uh, I, there's there's no reason for me to be here. I, again, I felt alone. Felt like I didn't have a purpose, uh, and I was maybe a, a half a pound or a pound away from uh, trigger pull away from becoming a suicide statistic. Uh, Marine knocked on the door, and I was actually really surprised that the knock at the door didn't jerk my finger and and do it. Uh, stayed with me that night. And then the next day I woke up and I can't really describe it, but because I, I said I'd been drinking a little bit, but I was not hungover at all. And my mindset, my mindset had just shifted from, I have nothing and the world is crashing down around me to I'm not tethered to anything. Now I have the opportunity to do anything. And how many people get this opportunity to just completely go in a different direction and reset. Um, and I clung to, 
my favorite Bible verse, Second Timothy one seven, which says, "For God did not give us a spirit uh, spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self discipline." So, uh, I decided I wanted to do something differently and kind of set my sail. At the time, I wanted to. I said, if I, as a former instrument of United States foreign policy, I wanted to go in and help shape it in some way, but I had no idea how to go about doing that. So I talked to a friend of mine who was in uh, politics at the time, and she recommended that I, you know, intern. And so I, uh, but I also wanted to go back to finally go back to school and get my degree. I had taken some classes while I was on uh, active duty and in the reserves. And so I had some credits done, but not a lot. Uh, so I applied to Texas A&M to go back to school, had gotten accepted. But I also got accepted to do an internship in D.C. Luckily, Texas A&M has a public uh, a public service program where you can earn credits for interning uh, in a political office. So I did that. But I still also needed to find a way to mitigate symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And I was done taking the pills that the VA had prescribed me. They prescribed some SSRIs, which also I, I feel like exacerbated my symptoms and led to the suicide attempt. And so a friend of mine had a service dog and uh, worked tremendously well for him. So I went out and got my own service dog and spent the last of uh, the money that uh, my ex-wife had left me <laughs> and uh, went out uh, and and got Kaya. She was a German shepherd uh, and had her trained and all that fun stuff and uh, worked tremendously well for me. But when I was in D.C. interning, a senator stopped me on the street and said, you know, most people, they, they see, I don't have a limb missing and I'm not blind. They're like, why does this guy have a service dog? So he stopped me and asked me about it. And, uh, the reason I got into veteran advocacy is because he gave me the idea that if he was willing to listen, other people would be too. And so I drafted what became the first iteration uh, of the pause act, which was an acronym for puppies, assisting wounded service members, uh, that sought to have the VA provide grant funding to organizations that provide these dogs to veterans because I felt like it should be a more widely accepted and used option. So that's kind of how I got into veteran policy. I never intended to, but well, here going, we are. Going back to that dark place, I just want to, this might not be the case for you specifically, but you know, we have a lot of the the rhetoric around veteran first responder suicide and a lot of it is, you know, break the stigma and, you know, 22 push-ups and, you know, call me bro and all this stuff. But again, I've had over 800 conversations now, I'd say three quarters, the same amount that your wife took out your bank account of these men <laughs> and women, <laughs> um, which is not half, um, you know, have had this other kind of element going on that you never hear discussed when it comes to the suicide conversation there's all obviously this this wanting the suffering to end you know everything's falling down around you you know you're in physical pain mental pain whatever it is but so many of them report it to also feeling like a burden to their family so when you have the conversation oh, yeah. of oh it's so cowardly it's so selfish how could they and i just spoke to a, a guy who literally laid out the the physiology of it how this works in the brain but that miswiring, that, that, that neurochemical um, malfunction, that you have someone that it's a selfless act. It's brave at that moment because they truly believe that their child, their infant, we had in Florida, two police officers within a few days of each other, a couple took their own lives and they left behind an infant. Makes no sense to a healthy brain, made perfect sense to them at that point. It was probably terrifying for both of them. So what about that burdensome element for you? Did you feel any, any of that at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, and it was, it was particularly because I was going through the divorce and, uh, you know, I, I had issues. Um, and at the time, it was, 
I don't know. Maybe it was just my the the group of people that I served with, but like we weren't very open with our struggles with mental health. And in fact, when I started being open with mine, like in a in a public advocacy kind of way, a couple of the guys I served with um, gave me shit about it and tried to say that like, oh, you don't have PTSD. Like you know you 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 know you didn't do as much as I did or whatever. And we've they've since apologized and said, man, I'm sorry. I was just projecting my own stuff that I, that I haven't done. But, um, I, I did, I felt like a burden on, I felt like I was just every time I would talk with a family member, every time I was just, I was venting and I was, and I was being an emotional burden on them. Um, uh, notwithstanding being like a financial burden. Cause you know, I was, I was struggling at the time and, uh, you know, people wanted to help, but obviously, you know, um, uh, the economy wasn't really doing great at the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, certainly I felt like a burden and I'm sure that I'm sure in the moment I thought, you know, some, some people close to me might miss me. Um, but they're probably better off. I think so. I just feel like that needs to be put in the conversations, put on the posters, because that means that's just a huge red flag. That you And I think what exasperates it is police, fire, EMS, military. We're in professions where we've said, if it comes to it, I will die for a complete stranger. So you've also got this profession that's got that service mentality that I think pushes us even closer to suicide when we get into that crisis element. So if you are actually, the voices in your head are saying, you're a burden to your children, your family, your your parents. That is a huge red flag to pick up the phone and whoever you you know feel like you can talk to at that moment, start the process. Yeah, that's why also um, I understand the intent behind it, but that's also why I hate those push-up challenges or anything like that. I mean, your time would be better served. Just pick up the damn phone and call a veteran, whether you think they're struggling or not, just like, you know, call somebody you served with, call, you know, whatever, and just maintain those relationships so that you can keep a good baseline of where they're at. And if you notice they're starting to slip a little bit and having a hard time, you can give them like you or you can refer them to resources that can help. And it doesn't have to be mental health. This is my biggest deal with, uh, and Mission Roll Call has been very public advocating for more sensible mental health policies because suicide is not inherently a mental health problem, Right. We, we certainly, having a mental health diagnosis of something can, it can exacerbate, you know, things that you're already experiencing, but it really is a struggle with the human condition, with relationships and, uh, again, like employment and finances and acute financial stress and, um, and things like that. So it bothers me because we have this very reactionary approach and we say, you know, if somebody's struggling, call them, or if somebody's struggling, tell them to call 988, which I'm not discouraging. If you're in crisis, totally call 988, um, or talk to anybody really. Um, but we tend to focus on the reactionary needs. And if you're struggling, you know, go to the VA and talk to somebody or, or take these pills. The VA's approach is evidence-based therapies, which are pills and therapy which on their own website for the PTSD decision guide, um, you know, therapy works roughly 50% of the time. Uh, pills work roughly 35% of the time, 40% of the time, but with a whole host of negative, you know, benefits. 
and we have to be more upstream. And so call somebody, not, not like if you're struggling, if you're not struggling, call a veteran, you know, that you served with, call a veteran that, you know, just keep that relationship, um, keep that relationship warm and you'll do more just by doing that than, you know, I, probably quite a few people. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I've talked about the push-up challenge. You know, it's kind of like the the ice bucket challenge. Did it really? I think it did. Ironically, send some money to ALS, but I mean, is it really, you know, curing it, or did it did it morph into which I think the push-ups are too? There's there's a thin line between. Oh, I'm doing this for the right reason and narcissism. Let me do it with my friend on my back, and let me. You know what I mean? Now it becomes a you know, dog and pony show rather than this message, but. And I think that, I don't know if you found this in your realm, but another thing I see in the first responder profession is you get a few beacons of light when it comes to mental health. They've been through the crucible themselves. They came out the other end. They're, they're you know, examples of hope and they get mobbed by people that are, are hurting. If we simply went to a buddy system and each one of us had two or three that we were always going to check on each other, you're far less likely to lose people through the cracks. But if you assume that your peer support guy has got everyone's back, that's how we lose a lot of people. I actually have found, uh, interestingly, I mean, you don't even have to call, right? You don't even have to call. I have five to six or seven maybe group chats of veterans that I served with or not even just veterans, like just people, like friend groups. And then I'll occasionally just, it doesn't even have to be service related or, or veteran related. I'll just send them an article and be like, Hey, what do you guys think about this? And we'll start a conversation and we'll start talking in the group chat. And if I notice that, you know, one person is not responding as much, I'm not the only one that notices it. Um, you know, I'll try to call that person. And then if he doesn't answer, I'll call another person in the group chat and be like, Hey, have you talked to you know this person lately? And it's kind of a, a group mentality of that's not, that's not like overtly being like, Hey man, are you struggling right now? Like, are you thinking about hurting yourself or whatever? It's a natural, Hey, this guy's normally really talkative and, and he's whatever. And nine times out of 10, it's, it's, Oh man, I'm sorry. I've been so busy. And you know, my wife, I was doing all this stuff over the weekend and family was in town or blah, 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 whatever. Uh, but that one out of 10 time, it's like, yeah, man, you know, I broke up with my girlfriend and, you know, work's not going great and struggling and whatever. And it's, and it's those conversations that they trust you because you've already had that relationship built up. Um, but it's not, so it's not like weird that you're just cold calling them. Um, and you're, and you're really helpful and you can be that person that they trust to be like, well, Hey man, like what, what kind of resources have you, have you used? Like, have you, have you tried, um, you know, military one source because they're, um, or not military one source. Uh, um, I forget what the organization is, but the one that provides like acute financial help, like in the moment, or have you tried, uh, did you go to counseling with your girlfriend or, or like what happened with your girlfriend? Like, you know, just, just things like that. So you don't even have to call, but just be proactive. So you have Kaya, you know, to, firstly, but with Kaya specifically, talk to me about how the canine therapy helped i've got a german shepherd outside my my window i lost i lost mine in september so we'll get on the grief side of losing you know an, an animal that you adored but what what was the addition of a four-legged you know therapy dog for you personally um 
Well, so she was a, um, a, a legally trained service dog, um, which has a different classification than, than uh, therapy dogs or emotional support animals. But, um, you know, I got her because she was specifically trained to wake me up from nightmares when I was having nightmares and use what's called animal-assisted intervention uh, to stop anxiety or panic attacks. And uh, it worked tremendously well for me, but I think it worked more so because she provided a sense of purpose that pills just would never do. Mornings that I didn't feel like getting out of bed, she still needed to be walked, so I still had to get out of bed, and I still had to walk her around. And plus, dogs are just happy, you know? They're just, they're just happy, like, and they're always down to party. No matter what you say or do, you can just, you can talk, like, uh, in a high-pitched, hey, you want to go outside? You know, you want to do this? You want And they're just like, I don't know where we're going, but yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's, it, it's just a, and you don't feel like you're a burden uh, to them, because, they're dogs, you know, uh, and they provide a sense of, of uh, not only purpose, but a sense of responsibility that you can build on. And there's a lot of research that says when, you know, fingers meet fur, you get that shot of uh, dopamine or serotonin or whatever it is. Um, so it's, 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 it's been empirically proven, but even the VA who I had to drag kicking and screaming to support this, uh, has acknowledged in research that service dogs can help lower suicidal ideations and lower symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So, and I, and I advocated for that because it works phenomenally well for me. I've had numerous people on the show that it was their dog that stopped their suicide attempt. Either the thought that it wouldn't be taken care of, it literally came and, you know, nuzzled them, whatever it was, but that was the thing that, that snapped them out. Yeah. There's a, there's a great, ad that you should watch that is the most visceral uh it is just emblematic of of what you're talking about um it's uh, the royal dutch guide dog foundation uh i think and then you could just google service dog post-traumatic stress and it'll come up and it's just really powerful uh an ad but i i can't tell you since i've been advocating publicly for the pause act uh, it ultimately got signed into law in 2021. And then since then, and then especially when I lost Kaya, um, Kaya was very well known. Kaya, uh, she's the only service dog in history to ever get um, honored in a speech uh, on the floor of the United States Senate. And, uh, you know, she, she met the likes of, of Tim McGraw and Justin Bieber and Mark Cuban and, um, uh, so many people knew her and loved her. Uh, and I, I didn't expect the video that went viral to go viral, but it was viewed like 250 million times, uh, which is insane, <laughs> insane to me. But um, people would reach out, veterans and non-veterans, and say, man, if it wasn't for my dog, I would have killed myself. Um, and interestingly, there is a... Uh, well, actually, the study's not public yet, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. But, but there's there there is soon to be evidence to back up what you're saying that uh, a lot of people, one of the highest reasons, the public, not just veterans, but the public, does not kill themselves is dogs or pets. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I can see it even within myself, and I've never been to the actual suicide ideation point, but. 
I resonate, you know, your story resonates deeply. I've been that single father, that horrible divorce, full time firefighter, paramedic school. I mean, every stressor you can possibly have. Um, and, you know, in as deep as whatever the next click up is from suicide ideation, I was right there myself. Well, you know, there's such a thing as passive suicidal ideation um, that uh, doesn't get as much, it uh, doesn't get talked about as much. Suicide's insidious, man. It is, uh, it's, it, it is you know, religious or not, you can, you can take this as, as a euphemism, but it is the, the, the devil himself whispering in your ear that you're not good enough, that you're, um, that you're not worthy, that you're a burden. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to get to that point where you have a gun in your mouth or, or you're thinking about popping, you know, 12 trazodone or whatever it is. I mean, it can be, you know, you're having a really tough day and you're going through a breakup or whatever. And you're, you know, sitting on the road and you're like, man, like I can just, I can just drive off the side of this, you know, highway right now. And like, who would miss me? You know, who would whatever. And that's called passive suicidal ideation. Like you're not serious about it, but you have thoughts where you're like, yeah, you know, I driving drunk tonight, you know, maybe, maybe I wrap myself around a tree. Nobody misses me, you know? Um, and that's it. That's a huge thing too. And you should take that seriously. If anybody's listening to this, um, you should take that seriously and, and, and talk to somebody. I've had a few interesting conversations and, and I've heard people, you know, talk about it. They've seen it in combat. Um, you know, some of the, the stories are here in the fire service. I wonder if that was part of it, but this um, risk aversion, obviously if we're risk averse and it ends up, we get to take a bullet between the eyes or we get burned, I'm in a fire, well, we never get to tell the story. But sometimes you make it to that bunker or you come out with the baby and now you're this this you know iconic hero. But how much of that extreme perceived heroism was actually just complete risk aversion? And that person was really in pseudo crisis by that point and we just didn't care and they just happened to survive whatever incident they were in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, there is a, I feel like, um, veterans more so than civilian peers, this is going to be a very general statement. So take it with a grain of salt, but are likely probably to have a higher predisposition to be thrill seekers. Um, and to already kind of have that mentality of devil may care. And, you know, I'm on, because when you go to boot camp, especially Marine Corps boot camp, you come out and you're like, man, nothing could hurt me. Like I'm, I'm invincible, uh, which is absurdly incorrect, you know, <laughs> but it's the mentality that they kind of breed into you over uh, 13 weeks. And, um, and so you already have that, obviously when you go to Afghanistan and, uh, and you, and you, the older you get and the wiser you get, that's you, you learn that that's not not true and you maybe are not as big of a thrill seeker but certainly if you're getting into that situation where you're you're having having thoughts like that you're you know you've already you've already been in that mental headspace once before and it's pretty easy to get back to absolutely all right well then walk me through to the genesis of mission roll call yeah, Mission Roll Call existed before, actually, I came on board. I, I uh, advocated for the PAWS Act, uh, graduated from Texas A&M, uh, advocated for the PAWS Act, uh, moved here, uh, got a job working for the American Legion, doing mental health programs, then got a job working on Capitol Hill uh, for a, a senator, uh, did that for about three and a half years, and then worked at the VA for a little less than a year. 
during COVID and then got out uh, of the VA. Um, consulted for a few nonprofits. Uh, then the Afghanistan withdrawal happened. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend like I was, you know, running some sort of operation or, you know, the Pineapple Express or something like that. But I had connections in uh, with groups that were helping and conducting. And, and I was just trying to be as helpful as possible and connect people. And um, I was the only person in my former unit who served at the federal government level. Um, and so I was getting calls from men and women I served with, three of whom were on the verge of suicide that I had to talk down. One was driving drunk. He had two little girls at the time. Uh, one was driving drunk and talking about, you know, what was it all for? Why am like, why, what did I, I sacrifice for? Like, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, the other one had a gun in his mouth. Uh, so it, the point being is that, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I just in the moment had to figure out like, you know, what do I, what do I say? How do I, how do I stop this? And just tried to make sure they felt loved and make sure they felt not alone and, uh, and be genuine about it because I was, um, but I, I could see the writing on the wall of how the Afghan withdrawal was affecting uh, people from a very personal, real way. And when um, Mission Roll Call's CEO, uh, he said, hey, would you be interested in this, this position? Uh, the organization's number one priority is suicide prevention. And I, so I felt led to to go there and see if I could be impactful because, uh, frankly, you know, I had worked on Capitol Hill. I had worked at the VA. I had worked with nonprofits. So that's a a level of experience, a breadth of experience that that I can count on less than one hand that people in DC have. So I felt like I could be helpful to this mission, and that's kind of how we started. And it's a unique model. It's not a traditional advocacy organization like the. Legion in the VFW where you show up to a brick and mortar post. And if you have a good idea, it gets filtered through your local state convention and the national convention before it's presented to Congress. Potentially it's very, very direct. You know, if Congress, the VA or the white house comes out with policy that uh, could impact the veteran community, we have the capability to poll uh, our veterans about that and provide that feedback instantaneously to members of Congress or the VA or the White House and say, hey, this is what veterans think about this. So just keep that in mind as you craft this policy. Well, you have, you know, some of the things that you're you're um, advocating for broken down. And what I thought was interesting was rural versus, for example, urban. So talk to me about the rural vet and how, how different that is as far as their voice and the dissemination of information. Yeah, the, it's intuitive that veterans in rural areas just have a harder time accessing uh, health care, not necessarily you know, benefits like disability compensation and things like that, but um, they have a harder time accessing health care just because they are, you know, if you're in Alaska or if you're in Montana, the closest VA facility may be in Seattle if you're in Alaska or it's something like that. Uh, I mean, that's that's an exaggeration. There are VA facilities in Alaska. But um, so access is a huge thing, which was 
one of the intents back in 2014 when the Phoenix waitlist scandal happened and uh, VA employees were creating secret waitlists to uh, try to manipulate wait times and uh, veterans died, like hundreds of veterans died. Uh, the Congress passed the Choice Act to give veterans access to use community providers if the VA couldn't provide health care at a, time, a reasonable time or distance. Years later, uh, that got updated into what was called the Mission Act. Uh, so now veterans have the ability to use community providers in areas of the country uh, that may not have a VA facility that's close to them uh, just to give them better access. But accessing care, I mean, I think telehealth has helped, but of course, now we're seeing instances where veterans are, are being told that they can only have access to telehealth appointments, um, not only, but they're, they're kind of like pressured to use telehealth versus in-person visits when not everybody prefers that. Um, that's the biggest thing between, you know, rural and, and urban. And, and frankly, there are some urban hospitals that get a lot of funding and, get, and are huge hospitals that are underused. Um, because there's not that many veterans that are that are actually using them. A few years ago, the Congress passed the uh, Air Commission uh, in the Mission Act, which uh, stands for Asset Infrastructure Review. It's basically like a, a, a VA BRAC, because a lot of people don't realize the VA is the largest healthcare system in the United States and the second largest federal agency behind their DOD and budget and full-time employees. Um, and as I mentioned, there are some rural facilities that are that need to be expanded because the populations are, you know, uh, increasing. Some urban areas that maybe are right next to a, uh, like in in Durham, North Carolina, or Raleigh, North Carolina, um, the Duke Medical Center and Surgical Center is right next to the Durham VA Hospital, um, and so maybe, you know, they don't need as much infrastructure anymore. They don't, but uh, for political reasons, uh, that initiative was scrapped. Um, so there are things that, that we get involved in and that we advocate for that are sensible policy. Um, but, you know, it, it takes time for these things. Well, I know as well, Native Americans are the highest serving ethnicity, if I've got that right, in the military. Talk to me about the, the tribal element. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, tribal and, and rural veterans uh, have a lot of the same problems. I mean, access for uh, tribal veterans is, is supremely difficult, namely because, um, you know, land and jurisdiction of, of federal resources on tribal land and um, things like that. There are those issues, broadband access. Um, it's really just a for, for tribal veterans, it's more access because of jurisdictional issues than it is because of um, just straight problems with access. But the other thing, too, is Interestingly, in tribal cultures, um, suicide in particular, I've found in, in speaking with uh, you know members of the Navajo Nation, um, in some cultures and, and the Native Alaskan tribes, suicide is not necessarily viewed with the same stigma. It's not, it doesn't mean like in Catholic tradition, you know, if you're if you're in uh, if you commit suicide, you know, you know, you go to hell, right? It's not necessarily the same in native culture. Um, so there are cultural difference, differences with different uh, tribes that make it a little bit more difficult inherently 
um, to solve some of these problems in tribal communities. And of course, in tribal communities, like the, um, the rate of uh, sexual assault and um, kidnapping is super high for young girls, um, trafficking for, for young girls and for uh, veterans in the communities um, that can affect them in a very traumatic way. So, yeah, unique issues for all those populations. But our third priority is uh, amplifying the voices of, of those underserved uh, populations, telling those stories to policymakers to, to humanize them and make sure that during these policy discussions about VA healthcare and benefits that will affect the majority of the population, these these small subsets don't get missed. Now, you said yourself that you had you know, problems when it came to traditional, I'll use air quotes, treatment for mental health challenges or suicide ideation. I've heard that over and over again. They just threw meds at me. They said that, you know, it was someone that was in crisis, they, they said the next appointment was six months away. How, you know, what are the tools? Now you're king for a day. How do we fix it? Because I come from a country that had national health. So everyone had health care. When supported and funded and staffed properly, I think it's the best healthcare system model on the planet, personally. But, these- but it also takes up like three quarters of your domestic spendings. <laughs> yeah, well, then, so so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll bat that back at you. If you have a tax-based healthcare system and you are a good leader, then you put in a lot of proactive healthcare initiatives to make the healthiest population you can so they use your healthcare as little as possible. So, but the problem is, is that the UK is, is growing with obesity because we've got the same fast foods and inactivity now that a lot of American does. So I think, again, fully funded, understood properly, beautiful philosophy, mismanaged, understaffed, different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, obviously the American and the, uh, uh, we don't have to get into a, a inter-country, you know, debate about healthcare, but uh, the two systems are are vastly different. Even taking away the the national health service and um, American healthcare, anyways, just because of capitalism, right? Uh, in in the United States and um, sometimes crony capitalism. And but um, honestly, now that we started talking about this, I forgot what the original <laughs> question okay. was. But uh, you're, you're king for a day. How do we change day. it so that a veteran in crisis gets help oh, straight away? Then? So they get options easy. of psychedelics and ketamine and ther- you know, therapy dogs and all, and the, the smorgasbords of encouraging optimistic treatments that actually are out there. Yeah. Um, my two reforms that I would make immediately that I think would uh, make a huge difference would be that um, there is a program called the Parker Gordon Fox Grants that are housed in the Office of Suicide Prevention. The VA's budget for uh, suicide prevention is one-tenth of one percent of its entire 340-something billion dollar budget. Um, and it's housed in the Office of Mental Health. The Office of Mental Health gets anywhere from 12 to 14 billion, I think 13 billion uh, in the last budget request for traditional approaches to mental health, but within that budget is 497 million for outreach. Half of that is used for like VA ad campaigns uh, to try to get people to use VA facilities. Uh, 274 million of that is for the Fox grants, and the Fox grants uh, are up to a 750,000 uh, dollar uh, per year 
grant to individual organizations that are on the ground doing proactive work to prevent veteran suicide. They may be uh, financial services. They may be, uh, you know, like peer-to-peer group therapy, all sorts of different things. But I think um, that would be number one because less than 50% of the 17 million veterans in the United States actually use the VA, are enrolled in VA healthcare, and even less use it on a regular basis. So there's a certain percentage of that population that will just never use VA uh, because they have private health insurance or they had a bad experience. So you need to empower community organizations with touch points in these communities that the VA does not have uh, the ability to to do that. And they're oftentimes working on small nonprofit based budgets. um, So that grant funding can be huge for them. That would be number one. In concert with that, I would take the office of suicide prevention and make it a direct report to the secretary. So it's out of the office of mental health, because again, I think it's more holistic than just a mental health approach. Um, number two would be to uh, codify the access standards in the Mission Act and give the VA no choice but to, hey, if you can't give the veteran a primary health care appointment within two weeks, they go out into the community. Um, uh, two, two weeks uh, or specialty, if you can't give them a, an appointment with a psychologist or psychiatrist and they need one um, in, in three weeks, four weeks, they go out into the community. Um, right now, we're seeing a lot of issues. The, the VA uses these guidelines in the Mission Act. Uh, there's an f- interesting saying amongst veterans, if you've been to one VA, you've been to one VA because they're, they're run so differently sometimes. And um, so some VAs, uh, to protect their parochial interest and keep veterans within the system so they don't you know, start bleeding funding, uh, they have refused or denied care in the community to veterans who needed it. So that would be my reform number two. And I would, I would expand uh, with that. I would, I would force the VA to do an actual like air commission study on recommendations to close VA facilities that weren't being used, expand VA facilities that were being used um, and update their model of, of healthcare delivery. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. So I got, I got, I got two in one. So sorry. No, so, no problem. Um, I got one more area and then we'll go to some closing questions. Kaya. So I, like I said, I lost my German shepherd. She was 10 and a half. Um, and, I'd actually got another one. My mother did this because I had Shepherd since I was a little kid and she always kind of overlapped. So as one's getting older, it's a calm dog for the next next puppy. But also, you know, you're not left with with, with no dog. Um, but I wasn't expecting mine to pass so young because 10 and a half is, is almost medium, but it's still pretty young, as healthy as she was. And it absolutely crushed me, more so than any human loss that I've had up to this point. You've, you've been leaning into Kaya. Obviously, she's she's become, as you said, you know, that 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 dog that you relied on that gave you purpose talk to me about losing you know a service dog and and you know what were you able you know what was the next thing for you how were you able to get past that yeah man i mean i I mean first and foremost i'm still not past it um she died in february um and it was devastating i mean i i didn't it, it it happened so fast like all in an instant um she had a growth on her right uh, elbow that uh, was clearly bothering her, but she did she wasn't showing any other like serious signs of discomfort. Um, 
So I took her to the vet and they said, okay, we can remove it and biopsy it and see if it's cancerous. And, and so I did that and they biopsied it and it was a uh, uh, sarcoma. And um, they said, you know, if, if as long as it didn't expand, like we metastasized, we got as much of it as we could. And um, so, but she started after she, they put her under on anesthesia uh, for that procedure. And after she came back, she, I, I thought it was just the anesthesia, like wearing off for a few days, but she started having balance issues. Um, you know, she, she wasn't being as interested in things as she normally was. And there was like something really, really wrong. So I, I took her back into an internist and then uh, they said that the, uh, they could do an MRI and they could, they could do um, all the stuff, which they did. And then I sent those results to Texas A&M, which is where I graduated and has one of the best veterinary schools in the country uh, to, to overlook, like to look over the initial findings and they concurred. They said, um, you know, the cancer is spread. And at this point, like you could do radiation therapy and you could do uh, chemotherapy, but you may only prolong her life uh, by a couple of months and it's not going to be pleasant. And so I had to make a decision. Like, do I, do I, do I want to selfishly keep her around, um, or not? And, uh, I said, it was like the first interview I did after she, she died. Um, I said, I, I just didn't want her to be in pain after, uh, after all the pain that she stopped. And, not only in me, but inspired in other veterans who uh, told me that Kaya had inspired them to get their own dogs. And if they hadn't, they would have killed themselves. So I didn't think it was fair to me to keep her around or fair to her to keep her around selfishly. And, but it happened so quickly, and, but I wanted to give her the best send off I possibly could. And so I, you know, I arranged for her. She flew like 250 times on Southwest over 300 times overall. And, I wanted her to uh, to pass in Texas, which is where we met, where she was born, where I was born, and um, um, so we took her on that Southwest flight. And unbeknownst to me, they made uh, they were going to make an announcement, and uh, they told they told us beforehand. And so Sarah, uh, my significant other, recorded it, and you know I, I uploaded it, and it blew up, and. Uh, became a thing so it but it was at the at, in the moment i i didn't you know i wasn't paying attention to that i was just trying to cherish the last few days that i that i got with her and took her down to dallas to say goodbye to family and friends and then took her to college station to texas a&m where we were uh took her to all her favorite spots around campus i mean she was getting burgers she was getting pizza she was getting um but she was having a hard time eating too because the cancer had spread so quickly. She had a tumor like the size of a golf ball under her, uh, uh, under her uh, tongue. So I was trying to get her like soft foods or like chopped up, you know, the hamburger and stuff like that. Um, but took her out to the Bush library, uh, president Bush library where we spent so much time studying and just sat out there with her for two hours. And, um, it was a beautiful day. Just soaked up the sun, soaked up the last, you know, a few hours I had with her before I let her go. But I, you know, I still have, I still have nights where 
it's just something random that'll that'll remind me of her or something and i just start you know crying and it's i think as time goes by the more time goes by it'll it'll get less frequent that those things will come up um i almost don't want it to right like i want to remember her frequently and often um it's going to be hard not to uh but you know i think it'll it'll get easier to 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 think about her and not cry and not ball at least um but she she was so impactful that uh i don't i'm never going to forget her well i can tell you now that you've explained what the video was i shared it myself after sitting on my couch crying because i just lost mine you know 3 months before that so i know exactly what you're talking about now she's there on the blanket and they're doing the announcement on the plane but um, I can still see, my, I took mine to a kennel. I had to go down south to see my wife. She's in med school. And so we kennel mine for a couple of days usually because she wasn't a, a service dog. She was just a, a regular pet, which I would argue was still absolutely a service dog just without the, you know, the training. But, um, and she turned around and looked at me and she'd just been really weak for like 24, 36 hours before. Um, and she just turned around and looked at me and now that look haunts me because I know that she knew that was the last time she was going to see me. And I'm even getting choked up talking about it now. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, that, that's, that's such a fucking vicious circle that you have this thing that you pour your heart into. But, you know, if you last longer than them, there's going to be a point yeah. where you lose them. You know, not to get, again, I, I, um, not to get preachy or anything, but, um, uh, you know, somebody once told me that having a dog, and particularly one that uh, that you're so close with, is almost like the relationship that God has with us, right? Because there's there's a um, we will never understand heaven. Um, we'll never. It's just a concept that we will never know. Um, and it's like explaining the internet to a dog. There is just a different level of consciousness that they don't have that you'll never understand. And as a owner, um, you know, you look down at this thing that is imperfect. It may poop on your floor. It may bite at another dog. It may run and come back, but you love them unconditionally, you know, like God loves us. And when they, they die, um, it just, because they're not like humans that, that are, they don't betray you, right? They don't lie to you. I mean, sometimes maybe they can try to lie to you that they haven't had food yet or something to try to get more food. But, uh, but, but it's not nefarious, you know, they're just, they're just kind, they're pure hearted. And so when you lose that, it's, um, it's losing not only a friend, but a example of something very pure. And uh, I think Robert Downey Jr., or somebody said that um, dogs and infants are the only two things that express and experience pure love. And I think that's pretty accurate. Absolutely. Well, talk to me about Kaya's kind, uh, canines then. Yeah. So, I mean, after uh, Kaya passed away, you know, I spent years lobbying for the Paws Act. So I got really connected with service dog organizations um, across the country, uh, the largest one, which is Canines for Warriors, that's in San Antonio and Ponte Vedra, Florida. Uh, but these organizations don't 
routinely provide uh, veterinary like like care for veterinary uh, care for their uh, dogs, their graduates' dogs. And the only reason that uh, you know Texas A&M took care of me was because um, I, I knew the people at Texas A&M from when I was a student, and they recognized me on the field and. Um, and you know, after I left A and M, my uh, friend Gary Sinise uh, started a uh, a fund at Texas A and M to to help veterans with their service dogs. And uh, but that's not uniform; it's not national. So I wanted to do something a that could give veterans the same resources that I had, but b uh, to honor Kaya's memory and her legacy. So I created an organization, uh, and you go to you know, kk9s.org to um, provide emergency veterinary uh, financial assistance to veteran service dogs who get hurt um, or or need healthcare. And I've already helped since uh, the organization was set up in late April, helped uh, five or six veterans uh, at an average cost of $3,000 per veteran. Uh, to, which is a huge thing for them. Like every single one of them said, I had no idea how I was going to pay for this. And I was financially stressed. And and really one of the other things, our tagline is healing dogs that serve veterans. Because these dogs are supposed to be, you know, tools and pros- mental prosthetics and heal, help heal these veterans. Um, and so I didn't want these dogs to then become a a problem or a burden for the veterans that they were trying to help. So this is one way that I could continue to help fight that, but also to honor Kai's legacy. And if you go to the website, actually, the color scheme, the web designers were so creative and they did this without me even asking. Um, They went to uh, pictures of Kaya and they used the color of her fur to populate the uh, color scheme of the website, which I thought was just like phenomenal i was like man the the amount of thought but everybody loved her right so everybody you know even people that i was paying to help with website design were like we want to make this really thoughtful um so it was really good but i'm i'm I'm, you know i'm proud of uh of that organization it's not my full-time job obviously um and it's you know it doesn't take a lot of time because you're you know veterans apply i look at the application um, as long as they meet all the criteria, I call the veterinary clinic, you know, have a, a nonprofit a credit card for the nonprofit. I pay the bill. Done. Right. It's not a lot of time, but it's a huge impact for those veterans who, you know, have a vet bill. I had one that had a vet bill for like 5,200 and they were like, I have no idea how I'm going to pay for this. I was like, don't worry, take a breath. I got you. And it's done. Beautiful. So people that want to donate towards that, kk9s.org, you said? Right. Yep. Um, and I would encourage you to become a recurring donor, even if it's just, you know, five, ten bucks, everything helps. So Beautiful. And then where can people find uh, Mission Roll Call? Missionrollcall.org, uh, it, all spelled out. So missionrollcall.org. Uh, that website is is much more built out. We have a poll archive of all the polls that we've done. Um, you can select those news and views, uh, things, um, articles that, um, that I've, that I've written op-eds, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff, all sorts of good stuff. You can actually opt in to take the polls. If you want to do that, you can donate. Um, yeah, it's, it's great resource. Brilliant. Well, I just want to show, throw some uh, quick closing questions at you before I let you go. If that's okay. 
Yeah. The first one, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely mm. unrelated. Yeah, um, this is a great question. I love reading and I love books. I, I mean, every time I move, I kick myself because I have so many books and, and they're so difficult to move. It's like, why do I have so many books? But I just love them. Um, this is a great question. Um, right now, I, I like a lot of biographies. And I read a lot of biographies. Um, but one of the best books I think I've ever read, for obvious reasons, uh, is called The Afghan Campaign. And it is a book uh, written by a guy named Stephen Pressfield, who's a phenomenal author about uh, Alexander the Great's campaign into Afghanistan. It's, it's historic, historical fiction, so it's not um, all necessarily historically accurate, but I thought it was a great, it's a fantastic book. Um, also, On War and On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman are really good and I think helped me before I went to mentally prepare. Uh, I mean, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, so I love, I love the Harry Potter books. I think those are the first books I read that actually inspired my love of reading. Uh, so you know, I'll always be grateful to JK Rowling for inspiring that love of reading. Um, you know, big, big Lord of the Rings guy, uh, CS Lewis, um, mere Christianity is phenomenal. I'm Reading a, a because there's a biopic that Ridley Scott is putting out this year about Napoleon. I'm reading um, Andrew Roberts' book on Napoleon, his biography. Andrew Roberts is probably right now my favorite author. He wrote um, a book when I was getting my master's degree. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called Masters and Commanders about the Allied forces and the Unified Command in World War II. Uh, he's written biographies of Churchill, of King George III, of Napoleon, um, all these different leaders. Uh, and, but he's a, he's a phenomenal writer. Eric Larson is another great writer. Devil in the White City, um, In the Garden of Beast about the U.S. ambassador to Nazi Germany. There's um, another great one. My favorite one that he ever did was The Splendid and the Bile about uh, uh, Churchill's journey to number 10. Uh, and if you've ever seen the darkest hour, it's, it's kind of that story. Uh, so those are just a few. Is it Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon? Have I got that right? It is. Yeah, and I, I was like face. super skeptical about that, but uh, I mean, the trailer looks phenomenal and I'm super pumped about it. It's good. All right. Well then speaking of movies, what about movies and or documentaries? Hmm. This is another hard question because I love movies and one of my special skills is I have what's called an audiographic memory. So I'm able to watch a movie and like quote lines. If you're talking about uh, like drama, I, I love Interstellar, Inception. Anytime Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer get together on a movie, it is just gold. I, I mean, I can't think of one thing that those two have done together that I thought was bad. Um, Did you like Tenet? I love Tenet. And everybody was like, oh my God, it's so confusing. And I was like, it's not confusing. I don't understand why people think it's confusing. I mean, yes, I, the second and third times I watched it, I noticed things that I didn't notice the first time, but 
but I love that movie. And uh, Ludwig von Gornson, who's the guy that did the score, he's not he's no Hans Zimmer, but that was a really good score. He just did the score for uh, Oppenheimer too. So he's he's a and Hans Zimmer is one of his uh, he he says is one of his muses, his influences. So you, you notice a lot of Zimmer in his scores. Uh, love those movies. I, I mean, honestly, I'd have to break it down per genre, per category. It's so hard for me. But I think Interstellar is like one of my top ones, if not the top movie. It's a great movie, especially that end scene where he's in the Tesseract and he's looking back on uh, periods in his past that he wishes he could have back. I was like, that is such a great way of 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 portraying raw human emotion that everybody can relate to in a major sci-fi film, right? Like it's, it was just so brilliant. Um, other movies, there's a great movie that I just recently watched uh, where Timothy Chalamet plays uh, King George, Henry V, King Henry V called The King. It's a Netflix special. That's really good. Anything that is like history because my master's degree is in uh, defense and strategic studies. Um, so I love watching. There's a YouTube channel, channel this guy, Kings and Generals, where he has uh, historical, uh, uh, he breaks down historical uh, battles, like, you know, Agincourt, Hastings, um, the uh, Gaul, campaign Gaul, Julius Caesar, like, all, I mean, all this stuff. Um I watch a lot of documentaries. I watch a lot of World War II documentaries, a lot of Civil War documentaries. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't say that there's one. One that is strange that most people might not necessarily know is uh, HBO did a series, uh, a documentary called um, Panic, the Untold Story of the 2008 Financial Crisis that I think is a fantastic documentary about that period of time. So I want to ask you a question because your academic and lived experience when it comes to leadership and government, et cetera, we had a discussion the other day. I was talking to an educator um, and again, being a white belt, you know, person just from the outside looking in, but sometimes that gives you a, you know, a different kind of uh, perspective. When I look back at, through history, I see a screaming common denominator that is usually a small group of very greedy, very power-hungry people manage to coerce an entire nation. Now, it could be slavery, it could be the Nazi regime, it could be a number of things, but as we evolve, my optimistic mind is hoping that one day there'll be an, an awakening where the masses actually realize this tyranny before it happens and we avoid a lot of these. Well, like we said, you know, we. I don't. Th I don't think that'll ever happen because I think, um, you know, to to some extent, yeah. I mean, history is cyclical, right? Uh, Marcus Aurelius said, "There's nothing new under the sun," and uh, yeah, at some point, I don't think it's happening yet. But at some point, like, I mean, the monarchy is is not really a monarchy anymore. It's a constitutional monarchy, but the but the royal family has absolutely no power, and that's been a 
progression, but you know, in the United States, we're a constitutional republic, and and maybe at some point people get so fed up with the institutions and so fed up with the arist- not aristocratic class, but the um, you know, the quote unquote elite and the administrative state and blah blah blah, and 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 they they shed that government. I'm again not advocating for that. I'm just saying, um, I, I there might be people like yeah, Napoleon. Uh, there might be people like Julius Caesar that take advantage of that societal dysfunction for their own benefit, but nobody really stopped them, right? Like the people loved Napoleon, the people loved Julius Caesar, the people could, to some extent, those people knew how to manipulate the mob. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. But we're talking about historical and philosophical questions that neither of us can answer. But um, there was another point that I wanted to. Uh, oh, another book, because I just quoted Marcus Aurelius. Um, I love uh, The Daily Stoic, which is there's a, a guy. I forget his name. Is it but, Ryan Holiday. Uh, yeah, Ryan Holiday. He does a podcast, too, that's really, really good. Um, and I try to read that, uh, too. But I can you can never go wrong reading the classics. You can never just, you can never go wrong. Well, let me throw another one at you, then. Again, my perspective, the last two elections that we've been through, which have either side of the aisle, you hear the same rhetoric when they're down to the last two people, which is lesser of two evils. King for a day, how do we change the system so that we get the truly best leaders to actually be in these ballots so there isn't such a polarizing division that we've seen the last six plus years? That is tough. I mean, within the constitutional framework that we have, I I don't know. I mean, I think one of the most recent changes or things that people are saying because of Senator Feinstein and uh, Senator, you know, uh, McConnell, um, President Biden, like, I don't know how you can look at uh, particularly Senator Feinstein and President Biden. And I'm not trying to be partisan about this. Like Mitch McConnell can at least sometimes complete uh, speaking, complete sentences. And the one, you know, isolated incident of him kind of freezing up in a press conference is uh, it is the cognitive decline, you know, I don't, I don't know that the founders ever really uh, thought that we would have an entrenched class of politicians that camped out in the house and the Senate for decades. Um, And term limits might fix the problem, but it might just incentivize corruption for people to, you know, pad themselves when they get out. Um, uh, Some sort of upper age limit with term limits might, be good might be beneficial but uh, if it were to happen i think it would need to go through the constitutional process but i don't know how likely that is because people don't want to vote themselves out of a job so um came for a day one reform to get the actual best people um as a veteran i you know i I like Ron DeSantis because DeSantis is the first combat veteran that served in a, a, a like, especially after Afghanistan. I hate the fact that our, um, that, uh, that a lot of our leaders did not serve in the military. And particularly if you're going to be the commander in chief, I feel like it's important that you understand the sacrifices that people on the ground make for your strategic decisions. Um, so I like that about him. 
And uh, I think that's a strong suit. Uh, but again, like king for a day, it's so hard because you could say term limits. You could say, I guess that's what I would say. I would say upper age limit and term limits. You know, make the make the oh, and you know um, heavier restrictions on their ability probably to trade stocks while they're in office. What about the amount of money they're allowed to use for their campaigns? Because again, it seems to be a democracy. You know, you have to be a millionaire to even play the game. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't have a... I, it, like... I don't necessarily think that, you know, corporations should be able to, to donate unlimited amounts of money to political action committees and they can't donate to, you know, unlimited money to campaigns and things like that. I also think it's kind of, I say this uh, tongue in cheek and, and kind of jokingly, but I think it'd be funny if politicians had to be like NASCAR drivers and wear like their biggest supporters on their chest or on their back or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean the British model, the parliamentary system where, you know, you guys, I, I think get a certain amount of money, uh, once you're a candidate from the state, right? And there's you can use your own money maybe a little bit, but it's not... It's a very um, small... I'm not well-versed in British politics, but I know it's a very small amount of money that you're allowed for the campaign. Now, growing up, watching a room full of old, wealthy dudes waving paper at each other, shouting rabble, 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 didn't seem like a great thing to me either. So I wouldn't say that was the best political system in, in the world. No, yeah. I mean, and, and it, you end up getting like... Um, you know, rich people running for office, you know, then too, because they, I mean, for a number of different reasons, because they tend to be, um, you know, well, never mind. I'm not going to comment on British politics, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, but I don't know that any of that would, would fix it, but I think that would be where I, I would start, um, upper age limit and term limits. And I had a friend of mine try to argue with me so often, like, we have upper age limits, they're called elections. And, we have term limits in our public elections. Yeah, but like the power of incumbency is so strong. Um, it, that's not a valid argument to me. Well, my litmus test is very simple. Is especially, you know, in, in times of crisis, a leader unifies. It's that simple. So for the last two times, we've watched people yeah. cleave and divide. So that's not leadership. The problem, especially with uh, social media now, it's so easy we're talking about manipulating the population. I truly believe that there are certain people that want Trump to win just because they know he's going to lose and they can continue this. Like, sorry, excuse me. Um, this, uh, this grift of profiting off people's anger and being like, Oh, stolen election and the other side and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's interesting. Gavin Newsom and, and DeSantis just agreed to do a debate um, and there's a lot of people in the media that are, that are encouraging people not to watch it because I'm like, these are governors of two major industrial states with completely conflicting ideologies. Like this should be the debate that we do have. Right. And yeah, they're going to come out and say, you know, America's on the decline or, um, you know, the systemic racism or, or talk about like negative things. But generally speaking, they're going to be more energetic. They're going to be more hopeful about our uh, ability and capability. I don't want to see, uh, you know, President Biden and, um, and, and President Trump, like, just go after each other with hatchets and 
it's it, nobody wants this. Like I, I can't, I don't, well, I shouldn't say nobody because there are still some just diehards that, that are in the tank for both of them. But, uh, how much of this is societal and how much of this is political, right? That's another question you have to ask. Absolutely. Well, again, I appreciate your perspective. Like I said, I'm, I'm an avid student in all these topics and I'll never, you know, beat my chest about areas that I don't understand. I'll, I'll ask questions and listen and, and learn myself. Um, Speaking of, of great people, good leaders, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yes. Um, one of my uh, friends and mentors is was a guy, uh, is a guy that was my commanding general in Afghanistan. Um, his name is uh, Lieutenant General Retired Mike Dana. Uh, he lives out in Tucson, Arizona. He's a, a super smart guy, uh, very well-rounded, one of the most well-read senior officers I've ever uh, ever met in my life. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, I'll have to get back to you on more. I'm certain I have a list of people that would be interesting to talk to, but he's, he's the one that immediately popped into my mind when you said that. Beautiful. All right, I'll put him on the list. Thank you so much. And then the very last question for you, make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Usually I read, play FIFA. I actually love FIFA. It's one of my favorite games to play. Um, and I don't play a lot of video games, but you know, 20 minute knockout of FIFA game. Um, read, play FIFA, take a walk listen to Hans Zimmer. It's typically what I do. Beautiful. I got to say, yeah, the interstellar theme is, is beautiful. And listen to people playing them on all these viral videos, you know, in the middle of a shopping mall and some random piano, and then another person joins them. I mean, that one song has inspired so much community. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because I feel like I've, I've since it came out, I've been, I, I listened to it. He's only done one tour in North America and the closest he got to DC was Philly. So I drove like three hours to Philly just to see his concert. Um, and it was phenomenal, but, uh, you know, I've, I've thought he was a genius for years and, um, and now it's like some of these things that have been out for a decade are, are going viral and, and being, uh, but it's just, it's nice to see him get recognition. Cause I think he's a genius. I think he's going to go down even more so than like John Williams and some of these other great composers. I think he's, he's going to eclipse them all. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question, if people want to reach out to you or follow you on social media, where are the best places to go? Uh, well, I'm on all socials except for TikTok because I don't want China to have my data. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, CT Lyle one on Twitter, uh, CT Lyle on Instagram. Um I'm mainly on Instagram. I, I I like that platform. I know the joke is like Instagram is where you get the things two weeks later after TikTok, but okay, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make so that China doesn't get my data. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind yeah. waiting two two weeks for someone dresses a strawberry to dance along and lip sync, so I can I can right. wait more yeah, than exactly. two weeks actually. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, Cole, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, again not only your actual body of work and, and the nonprofit, you know, areas that you found yourself in, but also the vulnerability. We need we need this from 
all of our men and women, especially in you know, leadership positions, though, that can be vulnerable, can be honest about their own struggles, and that will then resonate with the people that listen. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous and courageous today on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I, I agree with everything you just said. And I've, uh, you know, always found that the more I talk about stuff that I went through, the more people approach me and say, hey, thanks, this this gave me the the, the the courage and ability to to talk about it myself and address my issues so i appreciate that